and welcome to Super Excited with Stefan Roost. I'm Mike, the facilitator of this podcast. In this episode, Stefan talks to Ron Botkin. Ron Botkin is the founder and CEO of ChainML. He's also a self-described tech optimist. His CV includes stints at Seabridge, Quentcast, ThinkBig, Google Cloud, and Vector. In this episode, Stefan and Ron discuss the importance of data and the need for decentralized models in Web3. Enjoy this episode. Hey, everybody. Super excited to be back. And I'm back with Ron Bodkin, who has been in the tech industry for a number of years, got a lot of experience, and bringing that experience into the Web3 world. Not only any kind of experience, but real machine learning experience to a decentralized environment. So really happy to exchange views and, and super excited to have Ron here. Hey, Ron. Hey, Stefan. Super excited to be here. It's yeah. great to be talking a little bit about uh, what we're doing at ChainML. And, you know, as you alluded, I've been doing work in machine learning for the last 15 years. And, you know, I've been an entrepreneur a number of times in my career. And just awesome to be back starting a company again and, and building something cool. Yeah, you've, you've been working in sort of, a, particularly in the cloud space with, with companies like Quantcast, Google Cloud, etc. Right. And so, Share with us how your view is having worked with maybe such big institutions and now sort of on your own and in a new startup on Web3 from this sort of centralized cloud environment to this Web3 decentralized world. Yeah, you know, it's certainly I've seen, you know, the importance of having large scale computing and optimized resources in the machine learning space, as you, you know, like at Quantcast, you know, 15 years ago, we had to build everything from scratch, building from our own data centers yeah. and optimize the full stack. And, you know, then went on to think big analytics were helping enterprises execute machine learning. And it was a mix between on-premise and, and public cloud. We did a lot of work with Amazon Web Services early on, um, you know, and continued even at Google Cloud and was in the CTO office focusing on AI. You know, and so I, I guess what I'd say is, uh, you know, we think that, it's really important to have um, the right kind of execution environment for efficiency and scale, but there's so much opportunity in, in our view around creating real open standards to let you scale the compute um, to do machine learning. And, and I think I think often is under considered is the, of course, machine learning relies on a ton of data, the amount of data that's used for training, even the amount of data that's used at runtime to, to execute the models, the amount of data that's required to describe the models. So I think a lot of times in the Web3 space, people uh, underappreciate that, that scale of data and, and the importance of getting data right as well as computation, which is why you know, we don't think that executing machine learning on a blockchain is going to work, whether it be you know, using smart contract language to do the execution or, you know, in fact, store all the data required to do the execution, right? So we think you really have to build a kind of open cloud that's interoperable that doesn't rely on you know centralized proprietary architectures so we think that's the big opportunity here interesting because um you know actually before i go in and and I, usually I, I i forget these because i get so ingrained right away into the conversation but one of the things i like to ask everybody is is there a book that you've read recently that really stood out or has shaped you in the past a book that you read long time ago that you felt really 
that's a book that I remember and, and maybe also for the audience just to give them a view of what they could be reading and or listening to because nowadays I don't think we read anymore. We had audio books and we listen to them, right? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a good question. You know, I, I've been reading a lot, you know, I, I mean, uh, a good, a good, um, good, good book that I read, actually a seminal book um, was a book Surveillance Capitalism, um, which I thought was really good discussion of like some of the challenges <laughs> in the current ecosystem. You know, there's been a number of good books on the topic, um, but um, I, I thought that one, you know, had some really interesting insights, you know, as I was thinking about like, what are the, what are some of the challenges and risks in getting it wrong with machine learning? And I think, I think that book encapsulated a lot of what was emerging as challenges. Um, so that's one that jumps to mind. Um, there's a number of great books though. Interesting. Yeah. Because I mean, anyway, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, surveillance capitalism, it's like you could construe that in so many different ways, right? And with CBDCs coming out now, everybody's sort of really worried of the 1984 Georgia Orwell picture where, you know, state really has a lot of um, control or influence in, in how we spend our money, how we direct our money. Um, in the U.S., fortunately, 70% of GDP is still consumer power, right? So it's in the consumer's hand. However, if you go across to Europe, government spending is driving a lot of the economies over there. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think you have to worry about, you know, surveillance of all kinds, you know, government yeah. surveillance, you know, surveillance dictatorship is quite ominous yeah. and, and disturbing. Yeah. But, but, you know, I think that the risk of the surveillance capitalism is you get these increasingly powerful technology firms that are controlling so much, like controlling yeah. the data, controlling yeah. the resources and locking up the talent and, yeah. you know, increasingly, you know, AI and machine learning is being built by and delivered by a small number of powerful companies. And it's being used to optimize for their purposes, right? Which yeah. is surveillance to drive a you know, profit, right? Like yeah. I always think about it this way. If, if someone had told me 20 years ago that we would have these amazing AI assistants in our homes and you could talk to them and they would meet our needs. I'd be like, that's cool. That's kind of what I would hope to happen. And then say, oh, but the way they work is big companies deploy them and listen to you. And their goal is really to sell you products or advertise. You don't choose, you don't pay for them directly as a subscription, but they're being installed by big, powerful monopolies, you know, to serve their own interests. You'd be like, well, that's kind of creepy. How do we end up there? And there we are. <laughs> There's a really good blog post actually out there at, that sort of describes winner takes all, right? Um, you know, it, it, and, it, and it does analogy to a lot of sports, right? Where you look at the Olympics, if the winner, you always remember the winner, but you never remember the second and the third place. And the similar thing happens in business. If there's an RFP out for a company to go and win, if the company wins that proposal, they win all of the budget. It's not broken down. So there's no second or third prize even, right? There's just one prize and that goes all to the winner. And that then ultimately allows them to uh, spend more money in marketing, spend more money in in different, you know, recruiting talent, and if they, and then ultimately also a second company or third company. Oh, you're already working with them. I'll work with you as well. So you've got a use case that leads to your advantage, which then leads to that aggregation of power that you mentioned earlier, and then ultimately more data as well, right? It's true. Although you yeah. know, the, the hopeful thing I would say is we've seen 
um, the power of open source has been yeah. a real neutralizer, right? Yeah. People thought that Microsoft was going to take over all the servers on the internet, you know, yeah. back in the 1990s. And then Linux came along and absolutely won out, right? And yeah. so I think the beautiful thing about Web3 is that it, it, it gives, you know, way that communities can fight back and fund yeah. successful standards that meet the needs of not just, you know, a capitalist that controls it, but users and creators, right? And, you know, in the same way, if you think about what can be done with machine learning, right? We think about Web3 social and looking forward to the metaverse and say, wouldn't it be nice if you could have more choice over your experience and what is recommended to you and what gets filtered out as spam or inappropriate content and a choice of child controls that your teenagers, you could decide with the right granularity what your teenagers should and shouldn't be doing. Yeah, yep. These are these are things that I think are huge opportunities. But the dynamic of Web two, where you have you know the moats and this winner take all dynamic, you're you're right, Stefan. It's like now, what's the incentive providing that choice? Right now, it's like we're going to maintain our network, and and all too often the incentive is to allow it to become more divisive, to become more damaging and more addictive. Right, and people aren't given the choice anymore. Yeah, I mean, we 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 definitely are reducing the number amount of choice that we get right um and to me one of the core things is just providing alternatives right providing choice um to everybody and the business models i think you pointed out one thing that really stands out to me is open source right the open source nature and the developer community contributing to this open source software framework, right, has been a phenomenal movement and a significant change that has not only led to new operating systems, e.g. Linux versus a Microsoft, but has also enabled a lot of the cloud computing capabilities, right, has enabled mobile, mobility, app development, blockchain, crypto development, etc., right? And so that's been a phenomenal power of change and enabling a lot more innovation to happen from multiple different institutions. You do not need to be so big anymore to innovate on a new technology. But it's different in data, right? I mean, in data, it's so hard to aggregate the volumes of data that you have Tesla in the car business, Google in the search business, Amazon in the commerce business, right? And Microsoft in, in, in their gaming business, right? All of this data that they're aggregating, how, 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 do you, how do we sort of disseminate the data or how do we get to a point where we're slowly chipping, chipping away at their data aggregation capabilities or, yeah, their, their, their routes to aggregation, let's say that. Yeah, well, I, I think there's there's a couple of factors here. One is, I think that long term, the opportunity yeah. to give, you know, real agency and control for users and DAOs to really make good decisions and, and represent what what's a good use of their data, right? I mean, you would see uh, things like previously, as at the Vector Institute, you know, Canada's leading AI research institute, and we were working with you know yeah. the health system around how do you allow use of, of uh, health data to, to drive beneficial research. And, you know, it was so hard to get approval and buy-in um, to, to even uh, new techniques that preserve privacy to doing machine learning, right? It's just, you know, I think a big factor is, is allowing 
people to to let their data be used in an effective way. And, to, and so, you know, DAOs and, and representation, I think in Web3 can long-term allow for, you know, people to really contribute their data to meaningful projects they care about. There will be some ways that people can sell their data and make some money. But I think that narrative that, you know, that the answer is to pay people for their data. I'm a little skeptical about that being okay. long-term answer. I think people are more open to, contributing their data to something that they they connect with and they believe has purpose and meaning. Um, and, you know, the other thing is there's also in the Web3 space, there's a lot more transparency, a lot more public data, right? I think we're going to get to the right balance. I think, you know, maybe sometimes there's a little too much public data, but the presence of so much data that's visible on a blockchain creates a lot of value that can be used in training machine learning models, right? You can analyze transaction history, and look to price things in DeFi or address risk or, you know, be able to collect social data and use it to, to identify spam or phishing or whatnot. So, you know, in a sense, uh, Web3 is a space that, that leans more towards transparency and, and making some amount of data available, which is a good thing. But, you know, there's no simple answer here, right? There's always going to be this trade-off of, of privacy and control and value. Yeah. Um, yeah. So... The, the, but the more we can create trustworthy um, entities and transparency uh, that people can feel confident, the, the more there'll be willingness to share data. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, there's certain models that have already evolved in, in crypto land, I'd say, right? I look at particularly consumer-facing models where actually their people are rewarded for sharing their data. Steppen, I look at Sweatcoin. You know, the more I sweat, the more coins I earn. But ultimately, I'm sharing that data associated with my sweat, right? Am I walking? Am I running? Am I swimming? What are all my activities? How do they accumulate points, which then get converted into a currency, which then get distributed to me? So I'm sharing my data and getting a reward associated with that. And then I can use that coin to participate in games, buy NFTs, or even buy physical real-world products, right, at a, at a sort of discount, those are interesting experiments, and, and to a certain extent, they seem to be getting a lot of traction and, and getting a lot of new users into crypto land. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, I think it very much follows that, that concept that you can use token incentives yep. to, to really reward early adopters, and then there's more value um, for those early adopters um, to join, um, and which is... You know, some of it's about incentivizing them to contribute data, but, but a lot of it's about building the network or the community, right? Like, I, I mean, I, you can clearly see where, you know, Stepin, Sweatcoin, you know, companies like that, or protocols like that can create um, long-term value in terms of providing useful data for people that are developing great health and fitness products, right? So they can be a three-sided marketplace. But, you know, I think it's also something where, um, you know, that they, um, the users are getting a delightful experience. They're enjoying yeah. those interactions, right? Like, I think that's way more appealing than an app that's just like paying you for data, but you don't enjoy using the app. It doesn't yeah. doing anything else for you. Yeah. It's just a, a small amount of mon money that comes into your pocket because that doesn't scale very well. It's like when it's small, it's easy to reward people with, you know, meaningful, like people are making a lot of money at first on Stefan. Now it's a big community. The value is much more, and, and you know, you you you're intrinsically motivated to compete and to, to get fitness and to go out and stay 
take steps every day yeah. rather than that you're making a lot of money, right? Yeah. Now that it's yeah. reached a level of scale. Yeah. No, I think, you know, one thing I want to sort of maybe switch topic a bit, but ultimately a lot of this results out of new data being fed into the system, right? And with your experience in AI and, and, and your background in that area, how have you seen AI evolved over the last couple of years? Um, you know, maybe actually decade, you know, we've, we've had AI for a bit, but never, I think, to the magnitude as we have it today. Yeah, so there's been a lot of exciting developments yeah. in AI in the last 10 years. You know, it's been, been the case that uh, we had um, the use of machine learning um, was just beginning to, to get some traction. Uh, we had a few trends come together. One was the use of GPUs yeah. uh, suddenly allowed you to make much faster progress in, in training, uh, deep learning models that, that really started to get people excited. You know, it went basically in a matter of one year, it went from um, something that wasn't being widely used to the dominant technique for computer vision. There was a contest, ImageNet, and suddenly one year, a team from University of Toronto um, entered and beat everybody, like one third the error rate of everybody else with this new technique. And then within two years, everyone was using deep learning, right? Which is basically using a neural network yep. to be able to, uh, to train models. And the same thing has happened in other fields. Um, you know, it's happened with speech recognition and language translation and, you know, the, the most recent development, there's been a few developments along the way as it scaled is this idea of transformers, um, which have resulted in these amazing language models like um, GPT-3 um, that, that have become really powerful, right? Much, much better able to uh, produce realistic text to have useful conversations um, they've, they've created a lot of excitement, right? And similar technique has actually resulted in uh, Dolly and Stable Diffusion most recently is really exciting um, image generators, right? Give them, a, in fact, it's a hybrid, right? You, it's trained on um, text on the internet and images and you tell it what you want it to draw and it draws you a pretty interesting, a few interesting renditions of whatever you wanted to see, just like, you know, language model like GPT-3 can, you know, write text to answer your questions or complete a story or whatnot. So, you know, there's been a, a tremendous advance, right? Tremendous increase in sophistication in the software techniques, the amount of data that's used, the resources that are being used. And so we're having rapid advances. And, you know, the, this concept of foundation models has come out where it's like you have a specific technique, a model that can be used for a wide variety of tasks rather than the more traditional approaches I need to build a machine learning model that does one thing really well. Yeah. But generally, machine learning is really you're training the machine to basically learn one thing and get really good at it, right? And to me, the advantage of that, I mean, and, and there are a lot of complexities, right? So I, I looked, I mean, if you look at how the automotive industry, the self-driving car industry has evolved, and it started off two technologies. One is the one that Tesla's using, which is image recognition, right? AI, and we'll teach all the different images, we'll capture so many different images, we'll teach it how to react in which different situation based on which image and be able to store that. And then there's the LiDAR technology, which is sensor-based, right? So it's trying to sense all the movements and all the different signs around it, and then react associated with that. And to me, the, 
the like you mentioned, the the progress in GPUs has got an interesting impact in the side of that Tesla has chosen to go with its image recognition, because I can actually now store much more data at a cheaper cost. I can process a lot more data faster and at a cheaper cost. And so to me, it's interesting, yeah, how, how that works. And to have that foresight just shows how difficult it is in choices you make that have a significant outcome, not today, but the choice you make today has such an impact in maybe a couple of years' time. And you're not, you have to make bets on how industries are going to evolve, right? And I think, you, yeah. Yeah, no, that the, you know, connected vehicles, autonomous vehicles, it's a huge industry, right? Yeah. And similar techniques, whether you're using LIDAR or computer vision just on, on light data, right, yeah. are, are being applied. And, you know, you have massive amount of labeling of data that's required and, Lots of large-scale simulation to be able to, you know, evaluate safety. You know, create a lot of simulated scenarios to assess safety. But it's still a very hard problem because there's such a, a long tail. So many weird things can happen in the real world. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so getting getting to confidence, and partly too because we have um, so much of a higher bar of what we expect from a new system than the current system. Huh. You know, if you could if you could demonstrate that autonomous vehicles were half as, as likely to get into accidents and half as likely to kill people, that should be a no-brainer. But I think you would never see approval of something that was only half as likely. I think it has to be at least 10 times safer in order to get approval, right? Yeah, no, I think that's, that's obviously always the challenge. And I think regulatory hurdles, given a change and uncertainty, you know, the risk is always going to favor... Um, you know, given that risk, the risk, you know, the, the decision is always going to favor not going down that path, mainly just because of the exposure that it could bring with it, right? Um, but I do think that we need, from a regulatory standpoint, we need sometimes a bigger leap in faith um, in order to progress as a society and to provide hope and opportunity to the next generation that's coming along. Yeah, you know, I, I definitely think that's where, you know, it's so much more powerful to have market forces that, yep. that reward uh, innovation and new choices. Um, that's what I think is exciting about Web3 is it's, yep. again, creating a platform for innovation and letting users and creators, you know, vote with their feet and pick the things that are really working for them, right? Yep. So that you're not stuck with, you know, the confusing roadmaps and the long launch cycles, and the narrow focus of, you know, companies that are protecting a massive advertising monopoly or, you know, some other kind of monopoly, you know, um, and, and suddenly you've got, you know, new uh, innovators coming in and trying things that are really delightful products, yeah, right? Yeah. So I think, I think, you know, we're not going to see a lot of success waiting for government to figure out how to regulate this stuff. Instead, we need to figure out how to build these yeah. DAOs, how to build great open source how to really return power to users and creators so they can pick the things that are going to really serve their needs. And I think, you know, it, and, and, and exactly you, I mean, with your background, right, you've, you've done a lot of writing around ethics, around AI, um, in terms of how technology is going to impact society, you know, sort of, yeah, what, it, what are your real concerns in the future around, I mean, you've talked about the centralization or the aggregation of a lot of data within a few entities, 
what are some of the other concerns that you have in that on that front? Yeah, I mean, I, I think fundamentally, it's it's really important that you know we keep some level of there. There continues to be feedback uh, around is the way that machine learning and AI is rolling out in products really meeting meeting the needs and the interests of users and creators and society more generally, right? I, I worry a lot about, you know, if you, as you automate processes, you allow uh, companies to use AI to increasingly um, create problems. And then they have big companies have very little incentive to investigate and question the negative repercussions of their actions. Right. And, you know, maybe an unintended consequence of whistleblowers like Francis Haugen with uh, with Meta yeah. is that uh, big companies like them will be less inclined to even do research and analyze you know, yeah. what's going wrong. But the problem is these these systems are incredibly um, secretive. Like there's no it, it's basically, you know, I spent time with a global partnership in AI you know, working with their um, their social media working group. And, and in that group, the big challenge is like. You know, there's no good way for outsiders to independently study and assess the impact of what's going on. It's not so much that everything is a problem, right? You, know, you can always spin up a story of this is an issue, that is an issue. But, you know, to have any level of confidence, you need to have a way of studying and saying, you know, is this something that's warranted? Is this a problem? How big a problem is it, right? If you're creating an externality, you know, just like, you know, we have to be able to study if pollution is creating problems and be able to decide what the policy response is. So, you know, I think I think a level of transparency, a level of ability for vetted researchers to be able to look at what's going wrong could go a long way and, and really calibrating what are the challenges. But, you know, I, I still prefer that we we try to drive innovation and get out of a world where we're regulating a few powerful monopolists that control so much of society. Yeah. I just have a hard time seeing the latter as like a positive direction for the long term. And it's so funny, right? I remember when Facebook and Twitter both started, they had very open networks. When they first launched, they had all their APIs public. You could query anything. You could build on top of their community. That's how they helped grow their ecosystem was leveraging the community who could build on top of it. And and now it's it's exactly the opposite. They've gone shut down, super secretive, you know, into and, and very contrary to the open source community, which is really write my code, open source it, publish it. And, and even some of the bigger companies that are trying to foster bigger change at a grander scale are even open sourcing proprietary technologies, whereas others are ah, shut down. Why is that? Is that because of regulatory requirements? Is that because of abuse that has happened? Is that because of, yeah. Do you yeah. Know? Yeah. It's, yeah, no, I mean, you're completely right about the, direct, the direction. You know, you went from, you know, building these platforms that were encouraging developers. I mean, yeah. I think the analysis, Chris Dixon's argument of, you know, companies go from attractive to extractive, right? Yeah. That early on, they're trying to build their platform. They, they market to developers. They make it enticing. At some point, dial switches. And like, how do we extract as much value from the community we've captured as possible, Right. I mean, you go from Facebook promoting the use of their APIs to putting their partners out of business, uh, suing, you know, power ventures who built um, an alternative UI on top of social media, right? Uh, you know, the, the basically, um, you know, there's this, this tendency, right, to, to switch that. And of course, 
you'll always have an argument, right? And it's, it's they're, they're not wrong arguments. Like there's privacy concerns and, you know, there's a level of quality. And, you know, if you allow enough openness, it allows the Cambridge Analytica's of the world to get access to data and exploit users. And, you know, there are legitimate things to, to, to think about. It's not like there's, you know, unfettered, you know, access to all the data and, and allowing anyone to interoperate doesn't have problems. It has real challenges, right? But, um, but yeah, I think getting to an ethos where you build, uh, where there's more ability to trust the long-term direction of the ecosystem, that's a huge attraction, again, of an open source space where you have more confidence in the long-term behavior, whereas you unfortunately could have a lot of confidence in long-term behavior of a massive corporation that they will become extractive and they're going to start to optimize for two things. One is profit and two is minimizing (laughs) risk, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's definitely a a role between founder-led and founder-led companies and and sort of professional management-led companies. And there's also a transition that always takes place, right? And um, and it's it's always very challenging because ultimately there's a culture and a philosophy that helped get a company to a certain point with the founder, maybe in some cases, sort of really behind a new vision and mission and culture versus a new management that comes in. And or even when you go public, right, the expectations on what you have may actually influence the culture that you have and the the, the vision and the path to pursue that vision um, changes. But either way, you know, one of the things that I feel always interesting, there's always a new set of technology coming around the corner. There's always going to be something new. And we spend a lot of our time, we launched Trueflation.com. So we're now aggregating a lot of data. And I think partially that's how we started getting deeper and deeper involved in, in, in our relationship, where how could we leverage the data that we track to leverage and use that for AI, right? And for us, we're going back, we're tracking 18 million items. We go back 10 years and all the way to 2010, and we ca- capture that data on a day-to-day basis, right? How, I mean, for us, storage is a big issue, right? Um, scalability in terms of being able to process that data is equally an issue. And then ultimately, there's a way to manage that data and then be able to share it to the decentralized community, allow them to work with it, allow us to monetize that. Where in your experience, you know, across Web3, do we have the biggest problem? Is it really going to be on the storage side? Is it going to be on the management side? Is it or going to be on scalability in terms of being able to process that on a decentralized network in a decentralized database? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the processing the data in a decentralized way. So to be able to access it in, in real time, to be able to, to build high value uh, models on top, right? So yeah. like, you know, take, take all this detailed inflation data and, and, and latest updates, then to be able to start to do predictive models of, yeah. you know, where is it going? And, you know, what are the, what's the volatility or, or the, the range, right? Like, just as important as, to know like how, how much confidence you have and how, how big a variation might it be, for example, right? And that could translate into, you know, not just a global forecast, but a regional forecast, right? It matters a lot for you if you're planning, you know, production in your specific area, you know, if you're planning, hedging, like making practical decisions, historical data can let you build really effective models to yeah. make the most efficient choices, right? So I think 
doing that requires you to take in all this recent data yep. and then to be able to, to, to compute on top of it and then return the result. And again, like doing that on top of, you know, inside a blockchain, storing all the data in a blockchain is a non-starter, but yeah. doing it in a way that you can be tamper-proof and you can have confidence that it's being done accurately is incredibly important. Yeah, interesting. Because, I mean, for us, one surprise was the fact that we were approached from a lot of traditional finance companies about our data. And their request was they liked the fact that it was always documented and logged on chain so they know it couldn't be changed and they were getting an accurate reflection of that data. Number two is they all wanted to take it off to your comment right at the beginning of our conversation, which was you can't do everything on chain in a decentralized environment with such big data. And so they want to take it off chain and process a lot and run it through their own proprietary algorithms to then do the predictive elements associated with that. Do you see a time where Web3 will be able to have that compute on chain to be able to process those? Yeah, so we don't think it's going to be on-chain. I think that there's a lot of room to have confidence and tamper-proofing and scale and transparency without having everything be on-chain, just like yeah. decentralized storage systems like IPFS yeah. let you have confidence about having data that's stored in a decentralized way or an yeah. R-Weave, right, rather than yeah. having to have it either stored in a blockchain or you know, in a traditional centralized cloud storage environment, right? So I think the same thing around how do you build sophisticated computation. You can have more transparency into the models that are run and how they're run, but it's not going to be running on a blockchain. And we don't believe that any approach anyone has yet suggested is going to allow that. But, you know, it's like, it's going to require a spectrum of options, right? So you can still have security, transparency, censorship resistance without having it be as high overhead and as high security as yeah. doing things on a blockchain is. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, we, I mean, I think it's, it's largely just, again, having it on chain in terms of storage wise, and then taking the processing off chain and, and then being able to have the flexibility in, in, in playing around with it and, 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 and using it because ultimately it is about how you use the data. So having data, you know, I remember at the beginning, oh, we got all this data. It's like, yeah, how clean is it? You know, have you worked it? Have you structured it? You know, it's like, oh no, but we can't give it away. We're just going to sit on it and we're just not going to do anything with it. It's like, yeah, but then it gets stale. It gets old, you know, it's like, is it relevant anymore? And things like that. So it was interesting. But yeah, um, yeah. one of the companies I used to work in was in, Energy Box. We founded the ability to track the pulse of an electrical devices connected to a socket. And based on that, we could then, based on the frequency of the electric waves, we could identify the type of um, device. Was it a big refrigerator? Was it a light bulb? Was it a computer? What was it? So based on pulses, we could see that. And then we could see changes in patterns, which would likely mean that there might be an error occurring or the engine was getting tired or, you know, it was overheating or whatever it might be. And so that was an interesting use of, but it took us so long to convince entities and enterprise to understand that. And 
in my view, there's the big tech companies that have grown out of data and using data to create a competitive advantage. And then there's the sort of traditional enterprise that have always sort of tried to use data and learn from data, but have never really managed to execute down that path or taken long decision times and cycles to agree on how to pursue that path. How do you view, do you see the enterprise world adopting more blockchain capabilities in terms of entering into their processing capability associated with data because it's not a currency, it doesn't come conflict with CFOs, but it's really data and it's a way to you know, aggregate everything and move it around and share it. Yeah, I mean, I think that you're going to see the, it's technology that's going to get a lot of adoption yep. in the enterprise. You know, it's already happening. You're seeing consumer brands adopting NFTs as yep, an example, yep. right? And you're, you're seeing more you know, scenarios where um, DeFi rails can dramatically improve the efficiency of financial processing. I think that's going to continue to accelerate. So I think over time, it's going to keep you know, seeping into enterprise and, and we'll you know, get that kind of adoption. So, you know, I think you're right that just just like it's taken longer for more traditional machine learning and analytics to make its way into the mainstream of the enterprise versus, you know, Web2 natives that were built that way from the ground up. I think Web3 natives are going to forge the way here and really demonstrate how you can create value, right? Like your example of a, a step in or sweat coin that yeah. you know, are able to acquire interesting data much faster with tokenomics than a traditional effort to build a network, right? So I think there's a lot of opportunity here for sure. Yeah, one thing, how, how do you view governments, right? I mean, governments actually are a big aggregator of all sorts of personal data, privacy data, health data, etc. Um, how do you view their role and their usage and adoption of AI? Yeah, I mean, I think um, governments are definitely, you know, at varying stages. There's a few early adopters, a few uh, governments like, uh, you know, Taiwan, Singapore, Estonia that are very progressive, uh, you okay. know, in, in AI and or blockchain adoption, right, um, that are, are, you know, doing creative things and, and setting some nice examples. And I think, you know, it was interesting, like I, I had a chance to be involved working with state and local governments during the um, and, and provincial governments as well, and during the, uh, the COVID pandemic, and you know, you could see that there was just—it was very hard. Um, that they, they didn't have the kind of data infrastructure, and it was very hard to move quickly to make decisions, even when there was a critical crisis, right? So, you know, I think governments have tended to lack a lot of the funding to be able to put innovative digital services and the necessary data and, and machine learning on top. Um, and, you know, I think there's, there's rightly uh, concern around, around surveillance and privacy and, and proper use of data. And that, that slows down decisions and, and also, um, you know, making big, bold decisions. Like, you know, it was hard enough to make the big decisions in the middle of a crisis like a pandemic, but in normal times, it's incredibly hard in a democracy to make sweeping decisions, right? Yeah, I mean, it's in a democracy, it gets even harder, right? And, and especially when you come to election times, you know, people are nervous about <laughs> what the outcomes are going to be and, and, and how, what are the ethics evolved around that, right? Um, you know, one thing that just you mentioned Toronto and, 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 and the company that you used to work, Vector, you mentioned the name, right? I was just on with one of our advisors 
um, who's working at Berkeley, you know, uh, with Berkeley, the accelerator program um, out of the California, you know, Berkeley blockchain. And one of the things that he mentioned was vector search as a new technology for AI. And I, I mean, I, I never heard of vector search. So it was the first time I heard about that. Maybe, I don't know, maybe you can explain to me what that is. And, and I thought it was a company, but it was actually a technology that a lot of different companies use, particularly in the SaaS world. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, um, you know, I know one of the techniques there's uh, being used a lot is, is doing searches and embedding space. Um, you know, sort of deep learning model, you, you can characterize things like a piece of content with a high dimensional vector, right? And so to come up with recommendations, you, you tend to find like, what are a bunch of nearby items in that yeah. vector space that give you a list of candidates of things that are, are promising to say, now let's more, run a more detailed analysis on these 100,000 items and decide which ones are the top ones to rank. So that kind of uh, search and embedding space is certainly one one type of search. But I don't know if that's what you're intending in terms of vector search, but that's certainly one type that I'm familiar with. Okay. Yeah, no, interesting. I mean, it, it's sort of one of the things that, again, coming back to the data, I mean, we're ultimately trying to bring economic data on chain and, and, and make that available to developers, largely smart contract developers, as we believe that most of the world will be tokenized and a lot of the economic assets and, and data that we have are going to be converted into a token in some form or fashion. And for that, I need economic data. And as we go down that path, how do we identify what correlations are between specific elements and then how do we define that? And so that's one thing that we've been looking at. And so, yeah. But in your view, right, sort of when you think of data, you know, what comes to mind first? Do you think of financial data, health, identity? Uh, what, what, what sort of comes to mind out of just curiosity? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it always is going to depend on the application and the use case, right? There's definitely, you know, in DeFi, there's a lot of rich data, a lot of valuable financial data. But then you look at things like credit risk scoring and you start saying, well, there's complementary data that's yeah. not financial. That's incredibly yeah. important too, right? Yeah. And, you know, we, you know, there's, Companies, you know, we're talking to companies in the, uh, the digital health space, and obviously it's, you know, very different data sets again, or in, in, in Web3 social around postings and recommendations and interactions. So, you know, the data varies a lot depending on, uh, you know, what you're working on. You know, I just really feel, you know, super exciting space that you're in. Um, you know, I, it's, you know, just how and, and, and lots of insights that you have and, and deep experience, Ron, and, you know, super excited to have you on. And I think it's a really super exciting time to be in a, alive, right? I mean, in AI, in Web3, all these new innovations that are happening in concurrence. And how can people follow you and learn about, you know, you, your company, what you're doing? Where can they, can they follow you on Twitter? What, what's the best way to follow you and find out more about ChainML? Yeah, definitely exciting times. Yeah, so I'm at Ron Bodkin on yep. Twitter. Um, and then we're at ChainML underscore on Twitter. So okay. both great places to, to follow and track, right? We're right now we're pretty heads down building towards our MVP. But as we make progress into early next year, we plan to be talking a lot more about the details of what we're working on and how, how we're 
making Web3 uh, really able to take advantage of AI and machine learning. Esteban, it's been great having a chance to be here tonight. Thank you. Super good. And there's so much data on the blockchains. So looking forward to seeing the progress. Thanks a lot, Ron. Thanks for your time and appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. This was Stefan Roost and Rod Botkin. You can follow Ron on Twitter at Rod Botkin. That's R-O-N-B-O-D-K-I-N and ChainML at ChainML that's C-H-A-N-M-L underscore. You can also follow Stefan on Twitter at srust 99 that's S-R-U-S-T double nine and you can find the Super Excited with Stefan Roost podcast on all major podcast platforms and on YouTube on the Stefan Roost channel. Thank you for listening. Thank you.